church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door of God. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man with your host, Joe McLean. You are the spirits bringing us light, igniting the fire of faith in our lives. You are the Lord, you are a mighty king. You are the river washing us clean, giving us life. Setting us free, you are the Lord, you are a mighty king. We shout with joy, you're the rock of our salvation. And new, speaking with courage, proclaiming truth. You are the Lord, you are a mighty King. You are the Savior, God become man. Love became real when you stretched out your hands. You are the Lord, you are a Hola, buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you after a a week off. I was down in Corpus Christi with our Fullness of Truth Catholic Family Conference featuring Dr. Scott Hahn and the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. It was a great conference on the book of Revelation. We also had Dr. Barber, Dr. Petrie, and Dr. Bergsma, all very, very good and highly skilled uh, theologians and biblical scholars who opened up, cracked open the book of Revelation and gave us a unique insight to the Catholic approach to that great vision of St. John. And so uh, if you're interested, you can pick up the talks on CD or MP3 disc. Just stop by fullnessoftruth.org or catholichack.com and I will post a link to that on my webpage. The intro song was Mighty King from Steve Grassano. That was a great song, and I really like Steve's music, and I've played him before on the show, and I thought it's time for him to come back and share some of that talent with us. Well, today, we're going to be taking a break from A Father Who Keeps His Promises, because this is a subject I've been wanting to talk about for a few weeks, sort of a a quick apologetic on the structure and nature of the New Testament church versus that of the Old and maybe some critique we might have heard from our Protestant brothers and sisters. So before we do that, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory, and honor, and praise be to you, Almighty God and Father. We come before you again to praise your holy name, to study your word, to dive deep into your salvation history, your economy of faith, 
We ask you to send forth your Holy Spirit to guide us on this journey, to lead us to you, who is all truth, truth itself. Enlighten our minds, fill our hearts full of your grace. We especially ask for the grace to live as saints, to love, to be merciful and forgiving of others and their faults against us, to be filled with the peace of Christ that we might be light in a dark world. We especially ask St. Padre Pio for his intercession. Gracious God, you bless Padre Pio with the five wounds of Christ crucified, making him an inspiring witness to the saving love of Jesus in our world and a powerful reminder to us of your infinite mercy and goodness. Through the heavenly intercession of St. Pio, I ask for the grace of the strengthening of marriages and the building up of families here on earth. Help me, O Lord, to imitate Padre Pio's devout faith, prayerful holiness, patient forgiveness, and loving compassion towards others. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, you know, I've heard this many times in my own conversion and my own walk of faith, and we still hear this today on occasion. You might have a coworker, a family member, a loved one, just an acquaintance or a friend, a, a old high school buddy or a college roommate. Somebody in your life has, has, at one point or another has told you, you know, Jesus came to do something completely and entirely new. This old Catholic church and all your your staunch rituals and and all of this stuff this is completely foreign. That's just too much like the, like what was going on in the Old Testament. And Jesus rejected all of that. And now it's a more simple gospel. Have you heard that before? I mean, I know I have. Okay. The question is: Is that the case? Is what Jesus came to accomplish, what he brought to the world, is it something entirely new? Or is it similar to what we did find in the Old Testament? Well, of course, I'm going to argue that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and his plan for salvation, the Word of God who was there in the beginning, according to St. John's Gospel, chapter 1, that prologue makes it clear that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the very beginning, the plan of salvation history, that plan has not changed. Now, we might see all the mistakes made by all the key figures, Adam and Eve and Noah, and we might see Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob, and even, you know, Joseph, and even uh, Moses and Aaron and all of these key figures throughout salvation history have made critical and crucial mistakes. I mean, the people make it into the land and, and they, they, they want Saul to be their king. And Saul, he falls short. And David, David becomes king. And David falls short. And Solomon, and Solomon falls short. And Solomon's son falls short. And the people rebel. So we see all the mistakes in salvation history but I want you to see the constant theme, the thread that connects and ties it all. It's not God making the mistakes. It's man making those mistakes. God's plan for the economy of salvation is constant throughout. That's what I would argue. That's what I want to show. 
So the first thing I want to do, and this is just going to scratch the surface, there's simply not enough time to do a very exhaustive look into this, to quote every single reference, to pull out all of the uh, absolute nuggets. Instead, I'm just going to hit the caps, just the, the highlights of this, and, and go through just a couple of points, and we're going to look at them. Let's first start with the structure, okay? The structure of the people of Israel versus the structure Jesus came to, to bring to us. Are they the same, or are they completely and entirely different? That's the question. Well, for, this, for the sake of this argument, I want to look at Exodus chapter 24. That's where we will begin, where the people are brought out of the land of Egypt, and there they are made into a nation. Okay, They've, they've gone from a family, you know, a husband and wife, a marriage, into a family in Noah, into a tribe under Abraham, into a, a people— a nation under Moses, okay? And that nation will have a constitution, as we will get into in our study of salvation history. But if we look at Exodus chapter 24, we see that Moses, he calls out a structure. You know, God asked asked him to do this. And so he calls out three in particular people that are at the top, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. He also calls out 70 elders to to help him to manage the people. These 70 elders, they're, our chief, they're chiefs of the people. They're, they're given a portion of the spirit of Moses. We read about that in Numbers chapter 11, verses 16 through 25. And what happens once they've received the spirit of Moses? They prophesy. That's very key. It's very unique. Back in Exodus chapter 24, these 70 elders or chiefs of the people, they also go up with Moses and the three and they eat and they drink with God. That's also very key and crucial. Moses also calls out 12 men of the tribes, 12 priests. He sets them up on 12 altars. They each offer a sacrifice. Moses takes the blood of these sacrifices and he sprinkles it upon the altar. And he also sprinkles it upon the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant. This is, this is very crucial language that's going on here. We've talked about this on the show in the past. We did a little series on the Eucharist, and we showed how this links us to that night, that key night in our salvation history, the night before our Lord was betrayed, when he called together his twelve in the upper room, and there he gave them the new sacrifice. He links back to this particular passage in Exodus 24, where he takes the cup, and on the cup he is filled with wine, and he says, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant. Well, uh, that's the language from our liturgy at Mass, but that language comes to us from our Lord, and we read about it in the Gospels, and, and we are told how our Lord links his cup, this particular cup, which in the, the Passover liturgy, the, the, uh, the, the Passover liturgy that was celebrated by the Jews every year and still is today, when they go through this, there are four cups that they go through in the liturgy of the Passover. The cup our Lord used to consecrate is the cup of blessing, and, and this is the third cup, okay? And he takes this cup and he transforms this cup into his own blood, just like he takes the bread, the unleavened bread, and he transforms that into his body. Why? How do we know this? Because he says so. Because his word is creative. His word is powerful. When God speaks, 
things happen. Creation comes into existence. Life begins. The world, you know, the universe expands. That's the power of God's word. His word does not return void. When God says something, he is faithful to himself to see to it that that something happens. This is why over and over again, when the people abuse God, when they disrespect God, when they turn their backs on God, when they worship the Baals, the foreign, the, the, the false deities, over and over and over again, God forgives them. He's loving and, and he's kind and he's merciful and he forgives them. He doesn't give up on them completely. Because why? Because he swore a covenant oath. And he didn't owe them anything, but he owed it to himself, to his own righteousness, to keep his end of the bargain. Even when we, fallible human beings, cannot, God keeps his end of the the bargain. So, God's word is absolutely powerful. And our Lord is the word of God. He is homoousius, of the same substance as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, when Jesus speaks this word of of the consecration of the bread and wine, he transforms it into his own body and his own blood because he says, this is my body and this is my blood. Now, again, we've done a whole series on this and I'm sort of going down a tangent, so we need to move on here. But we see how these, uh, these 12 priests, okay, are set up on 12 altars. And so Moses calls the three, he calls the 70, and he calls the 12 priests, and they offer sacrifice, and Moses takes their blood and he sprinkles it on the people. Now, that's the, in a nutshell, that's the the structure that we see of the people of Israel in the Old Testament prior to them entering into the land and then setting up eventually judges and as well as a king. And St. Luke's Gospel, we see how Jesus calls also forth the three. Peter, James, and John, he calls forth the twelve, the twelve apostles, the twelve disciples. So he's got the three, Peter, James, and John, who are also a part of the twelve. He also calls forth 70 elders, and we find that in St. Luke's Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. The twelve are called in in chapter 9, by the way. Now, the 70 that he calls forth in chapter 10 of St. Luke's Gospel, these are sent as prophets among the people, preaching and, and proclaiming that the kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's like heaven and earth, touching down, okay, combining, coming together. Now, he, he gives them a blessing, these 12. He sends them out, you know. He sends them out two by two and tells them to proclaim their peace upon the house that they are that they come to. And he tells them that they are to eat and drink what is set before them, just like the other 70 in, in Exodus chapter 24 with Moses. Okay? And like Moses, who ascends the mountain into the cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud there, who was burning the top of that mountain, our Lord, who is greater than Moses, he ascends into heaven on a cloud, and there is in the midst of the God the Father, the very presence of God, right? So we see the parallels between Moses and Jesus, and we must always remember that Jesus is greater than Moses. He is the prophet who would be greater, that Moses prophesied and told the people would come. 
So the structure we see that Jesus sets up is very much akin to the structure that Moses set up by command of God himself. At the time that Jesus uh, walked, okay, in the first century, the Jews, they, uh, they had a king prior to the exile, of course. Once the exile took place, the, the king didn't sit on the throne. But they did have a king that was uh, that king was not a very good king, and he wasn't even Jewish. He was a descendant from Esau. He was an Edomite, and that king is the king who killed the innocents in Bethlehem, looking to kill Jesus himself when he was born. And Jesus, his parents Mary and Joseph, fled into Egypt to avoid that uh, that evil King Herod. Okay, so there was a king set up, a structure of a king there. There was also a high priest, and there was also a second high priest, the Sagan Hakohanin, the the second who carried the keys to the kingdom, specifically the captain of the temple who possessed the keys of the temple, he was always on standby. Okay, just in case that the uh, the high priest couldn't fulfill his duty or function, the Sagan or the second high priest could fulfill that function. There was also uh, there was uh, the 70 elders, the Sanhedrin, this council of 70 there in Jerusalem, who had, in some traditions, in some uh, Jewish traditions, had two uh, presidents. One was the high priest, the second was the, the Sagan Hakohanin, the second high priest. And it was also said that that second high priest was considered the father of the council. Now, in past episodes, we looked at the parallels between the the captain of the temple or the Sagan Hakohanin, the keeper of the keys, you know, the, the chief minister in the court of the kingdom. We compared him to St. Peter in Matthew chapter 16, and the parallels are phenomenal. But in Isaiah, where we looked at that passage, it was said that that Sagan was the father of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, just like St. Peter and his successors are the father of the church, okay, the father of the people of the church, or the father of the new Jerusalem, the new church, the new Israel, and that's why we call the Pope Papa, or father, okay? So we see that this structure did exist, and by the way, in Acts chapter 2, when we see that that charismatic moment in the upper room, the people who were ingathered from every nation under the sun, the Jews coming back to uh, to the feast in Jerusalem, they were hoping for the coming again of these 12 men of the people of Israel, these 12 elders to come back to set up this kingdom again. This was a prophecy that they were waiting for fulfillment. And so we see that this structure this structure that was set up in the Old Testament is now fulfilled in the New Testament under Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills this structure. Okay, Jesus tells the chief priests that he will take it away from them. He will take away the kingdom of God from them and give it to more worthy tenants. He tells this in this parable of the tenants in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. He was speaking to the chief priests at the time and as a result, they wanted to arrest him because they recognized Jesus was a direct threat to their authority. I mean, the, the, the chief priest was sitting on looking at this scene going, what is going on here? He's got 12 apostles, one for each tribe. He's got his own Sanhedrin, 70 elders. He's got the three, Peter, James, and John. He himself claims to be king. 
the Son of the Most High God. They were threatened by him because their authority was slipping out. And Jesus tells it, he nails it there in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, that he will take it away from them and give it to more worthy tenants. Jesus was perfecting the structure that was intended from the beginning. He brings it to its fulfillment in the New Testament, in the new Israel, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, which is the body of Christ, which is the church. So, the structure is not something completely new. It's it's the old, perfected in the new. Now, what about worship? And again, we only have a, a few minutes left remaining in the show. So we're just going to highlight and touch on this, okay? Now, we've, do- we've talked about this before. Worship in the Old Testament versus worship in the New Testament. How many of our Protestant brothers and sisters think that they are making the gospel simple, or they think rather that we Catholics are making the gospel too complex, that it should be just more simple. Well, I ask the question, what is worship in the, in the Bible? What is worship in, in, in tradition? How is our Lord worshipped in his own heavenly throne room? And how did that worship, you know, come from the old into the new? Well, if you look in in Exodus chapter 25 and following, if you read, you know, 25 and on, you're going to see how God gives to Moses the the prescription for building the tabernacle, for setting up worship in his presence among the people of Israel. Okay, we see some very strange things, right? Moses receives the, the instructions, and what do we see? Gold, silver, precious stones, We see an ark that contains things that's laden in gold, a tabernacle, if you will. We see statues of of cherubim. Statues, really? Yes, cherubim are fashioned. We see a scroll. We see throne, an altar where sacrifice is made. We see priests. There's a high priest. There's second priests or sagans. There's succession of the priestly uh, role. There's celibacy amongst the priests while they serve. There's the candles, the lampstand there, the which is often referred to as the tree of life. We see all this Garden of Eden motif all over the place, even in King Solomon's temple, but also in Moses' tabernacle. We see incense being offered. We see baptismal water fonts for purification. We see a table laden in gold where the bread of presence is sat there before the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. We see the flagons or the cups of chalices of wine on the, bre- the table with the bread of presence. We see vestments, you know, on the priests of Aaron and his sons, these ornate and beautiful vestments that are given to the, the priest to serve. Sacrifice sacrifices, animal sacrifices made to the Lord. And we also see that the worship is set aside, especially on the day of Sabbath, this day that's set apart just for God. Okay, now that's a nutshell of what we saw given to Moses of worship to God with his presence there realized in the Shekinah glory cloud there in the tabernacle amongst the people of Israel. Now, what about in the New Testament? In the New Testament with Jesus, how is worship there being conducted? Well, I'll give you two quick references. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12, gives us a slight glimpse. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. The saints have all come together. 
Why? Because we are out, we are at the heavenly Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem. We have come to the assembly, the ecclesia of the Lamb. This is the church of the Lamb of God. The Hebrew word would have been kahal, okay? So we are at the church of the Lamb of God. We are in heaven, according to Hebrews chapter 12. We might be on earth. We might not be able to see heaven with our eyes, hear it with our ears, or even taste it with our tongue. Yet we believe because God says so. We trust him more than we trust our own senses. And so we are in heaven, according to Hebrews 12. Now, the book of Revelation gives us a glimpse into heaven. This vision of St. John as he was exiled on the island of Patmos He is caught up on the Lord's Day. What is the Lord's Day? The Lord's Day is Sunday. We know that from many very ancient references. The Didache, written in the first century. St. Justin the Martyr, in 150 AD, in his letter to the Caesar and the Roman Senate, makes it clear that the worship of God is now on Sunday. Why? Because that's the day our Lord rose from the grave. And so it's the day of, of worship for Christians. So it's Sunday. So we see another day set apart for worship to God. It was the Sabbath in the Old Testament. It's now been perfected and brought to its reality in the new of Sunday. We see high priests in Revelation 1, 13 and elsewhere. We see an altar in in chapter 8, verse 3 and elsewhere. We see other priests or elders or presbyterates in uh, chapter 4, verse 4 and elsewhere. Vestments. Those vestments of Aaron and his sons, we see also vestments in the book of Revelation in the heavenly worship of God, uh, chapter 1, verse 13 and elsewhere. We see consecrated celibacy, chapter 14, verse 4, okay? Just like the Old Testament priest, when they served, they were celibate, so the New Testament priests are celibate. This is a perfection of the old. We see the lampstand, that menorah, that tree of life there in Revelation one twelve and elsewhere. How about incense offered in the tabernacle in the wilderness with Moses? Offered before the very face of God in heaven in five in chapter five, verse eight and elsewhere. How about that bread of presence that we saw in Moses in the tabernacle in the wilderness? We see that also in the book of Revelation, chapter two, verse seventeen. How about the chalices and the flagons of wine? Revelation fifteen seven and elsewhere. That scroll in the in the tabernacle and in the, 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 the temple of Solomon, we see the scroll also in the book of Revelation five one. Gold, silver, stones, Revelation one twelve and following. Baptismal water, that's that sea that sits before the very throne of God in Revelation. How about sacrifice made to the Lord, the Lamb? standing as if slain in verse 5 and chapter 5 verse 6 the cherubim are all over the place offering up you know sacrifices and pouring out chalices and, and and offering up incense which is the prayer of the faithful jesus made the 12 priests he perfected the passover replacing the bloody sacrifice with his own bloody as his own body and blood rather poured out for all and represented on the altars around the world at the hands of the 12 and their successors as the lamb of god standing as if slain this is where heaven and earth meet hebrews 12 He perfected the law of Moses with the Sermon on the Mount. He walked on top of the water as a prophet greater than Moses. He gives the true bread come down from heaven, unlike Moses, who ate, drank, and died. 
Jesus is greater than that. He has his twelve distribute that food, and they have twelve baskets remaining. A true son of David who sits on the throne, but unlike Solomon who was wise, Jesus is wiser. He is wiser. And he, unlike Solomon who betrayed our Lord by sacrificing to, to pagan idols, Jesus stays true because he is truth itself. St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, verse 42 says, The very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it it is marvelous in our eyes. St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 17, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, come down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. He didn't come to make all things new in a sense of get rid of the old and this is all brand new. No, he come to make all things new in the sense of he is perfecting the old. For it was the oikonomia, the economy of salvation from the beginning. And he will wipe away our tears. Until next time, God bless you. From the Catholic Underground. Peace on you.